George was lonely. He'd recently gone to university, as was expected of someone of his societal class. And with him, he brought along Boatswain, his loyal canine. There was only one problem. The university George went to, they didn't allow dogs on campus and the hound was promptly shipped back to George's home. This left the shy lad lacking for companionship. Rather than making friends with some of the other classmates, George poured over the rules and regulations of the college and subsequently found a loophole. It seemed that while domesticates like dogs and cats were expressly forbidden, bears were not. Yes, I said bears. So you know exactly what happened next. George acquired one bear and brought it to the campus. On several occasions, he could be seen walking the animal around the grounds. Thankfully, you know, on a leash. He kept his new friend in his dorm room, no doubt to the horror of his sweet mates. When finally confronted about the purpose of the animal at the institution, George tried super, super hard and unsuccessfully to obtain a fellowship for the bear. A bear-low-ship? Yeah, sorry. As he aged, George's perceived strangeness experienced no abatement. Quite the opposite, actually. He, he developed a phobia of watching people eat, particularly females. As a grown man, he was known to, to play war with toy ships in a pond on his estate, being childlike to, a, to the point of making gun and cannon sounds with his mouth. Sounds like a Twin Peaks character or something. Crack, bang, boom. He used the resurrected skulls of long dead monks and clergymen as flower pots. And it seems as, as though he never lost that penchant for his pets. Throughout his life, George maintained a menagerie that contained at various times horses, monkeys, peacocks, guinea hens, and an eagle, a badger, and fox, a heron, an Egyptian crane, a falcon, a crow, and a goat. With all his eccentric behavior, George didn't have the charitable side. While raising money to help the plight of citizens of a then war-torn Greece, he took ill and unexpectedly died, aged only 36. He had lived a short but highly interesting life that often confounded yet delighted those around him. George was also a genius and quite possibly the most famous person in the Western world at the time of his death. Think like Leo Messi or Taylor Swift. You probably know George better by his official title. George Gordon was the sixth Baron of Byron, known to all today as Lord Byron. Yes. That Lord Byron. As you have it, weirdly enough or not, history is littered with these Lord Byron types. The eccentric genius, the the wacky, the wacky mad scientist sometimes displaying seemingly crazed abnormal behavior 
while concurrently creating works of pure genius, and sometimes toiling in obscurity and self-imposed exile, only to have their masterworks discovered post-mortem. The eccentric genius is one of the classic human behavioral archetypes. And across the pond from merry old England, you'll be hard-pressed to find a place that is home to more of these strange geniuses in the U.S. than the state of Mississippi. I'm Cole Furlow, and welcome to Strange Wonders, Season 1, Episode 4, Oh How the Mind Wonders. When you think about Mississippi, certain images likely come to mind. The muddy Mississippi River, of course, also probably barbecue, fried foods, football, Elvis and the blues. You probably conjure up these weird mental images of the flat and fertile Mississippi Delta and vast interior areas of the state covered with swaying pine trees, all the rolling hills in the northeast part of our state, and you might even think about a city, maybe a, a city with soul. You probably don't think about waves or beaches in, in the ocean, but Mississippi is a coastal state. Her southern three counties, Hancock, Harrison, and Jackson, are all washed at their southern edges by the Gulf of Mexico. Mississippi's territory also includes six islands off the southern coast. Known as the Barrier Islands, these land masses help to break up lesser storms and hurricanes that can approach the mainland. Biloxi, Mississippi, located in Harrison County, is the home of Barks Root Beer. The sandy stretch of beach known as the Biloxi Beach is actually man-made being built as a tourist destination in the early 1900s from sand dredged from the seafloor further out in the Gulf. Shipyards in Pascagoula, Mississippi and in eastern Jackson County is home to Ingalls Shipbuilding. One of the largest manufacturers of battleships of the United States Navy. On the western side of the Mississippi coast in Hancock County is NASA's Stennis Space Center which tests components of every single rocket that the U.S. space program sends skyward, as well as components for private space companies like SpaceX. The Stennis Space Center was once the operating base for famous, infamous, Nazi-turned-American space pioneer Werner von Braun, who was a significant contributor to ensuring that a, an American foot was the first to touch the surface of the moon. So with vibrant manufacturing, scientific, and tourism ecosystem, it's not hard to believe that the history and folklore of the Mississippi Gulf Coast is just absolutely inundated with these wild eccentric geniuses and strange characters we keep bringing up. James Carpenter was, a, was an antiques dealer from New Jersey. Like many folks from colder climates, 
James would temporarily migrate to warmer regions during the heart of the winter. In 1968, James was enjoying his winter break in Biloxi on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. James was looking for some old car parts he needed and happened to stop in the Orr Boys Auto Repair Shop, OHR. While talking with owner Ojo Orr, that's O-J-O-O-H-R for our spelling enthusiasts, James was offered the opportunity to view some pottery that Ojo's father had made over a half a century previous. James thought he was about to see a quaint novelty and a few heirlooms of pottery. What was instead revealed to him was thousands of pieces of ceramic, the likes of which he or most people really had never seen. In an artistic accident for the ages, James had stumbled upon the legacy of George Orr, the Mad Potter of Biloxi. If James happened to have found himself wandering that same Mississippi Gulf Coast in the last decade of the 19th century, he would have strolled down the streets that were brilliantly white due to the fact that they were paved with crushed oyster shells. And he likely would have run upon a, a building that looked very much out of place. It was a five-story pagoda with a sign that read simply, Biloxi Art Pottery. The ecosystem surrounding the building was particularly eclectic, to say the least, really. It was almost as if P.T. Barnum, Frank Lloyd Wright, and Pablo Picasso uh, collaborated on a project together or just had a big high five. There was always this showmanship around it, signs reading, unequaled, unrivaled, undisputed, greatest art potter on earth, another advised visitors to get a Biloxi souvenir before the potter dies or gets a reputation. Inside were rows and rows of these souvenirs, the pottery of the mad potter. They could be tangible versions of something from a Dr. Seuss drawing or a Salvador Dali painting. Some twisted, folded, or otherwise manipulated in strange, unconventional yet beautiful ways. And the pigments with with which he adorned his creations, one might believe were a result of a hallucinogenic trip. So a friend says, I I have no idea. No two alike, the Mad Potter would tell those wandering in his shop. Or hailed from a German family, and as a child he attended a German school in New Orleans. Academics weren't to be his forte. And he traded books for sales. A classroom for the open ocean. George became a sailor, but soon learned that a life on the waves wasn't for him. A friend introduced him to pottery making, a growing artisan trend in the 1880s. And it was at the potter's wheel that George finally found his love and his mad genius. Or his craftsmanship was a real soup-to-nuts approach. He dug his own clay from the Chudokabufa River. Yeah, I'd have no idea I'm saying that word right. He built his own workshop outside of his parents' house. Even the potter's wheel and firing kiln were of his own design and construction. Early on, he branded his strange creations as pot or e 
which we have to admit is clever and cringeworthy at the same time, like pot or e. At first, I didn't get it. There's a familiar saying that says if you play with fire, you'll eventually get burned, and ironically, then that four-up hotter whose job was literally to play with fire would have their life and livelihood violently disrupted by the very element that supports their craft. In 1894, a fire swept through parts of Biloxi. While Or Studio wasn't the source of the blaze, it, it surely was a casualty. After the flames were extinguished, George picked through the, the charred remains of his handiwork. He kept the pieces he collected, and most people would have considered just to be trash, really. For the rest of his life, he just kept trying to find and pick through the trash. His reasoning. Did you ever hear of a mother so inhumane that she would cast off her deformed child? He once told someone who asked. Or's pottery was more to him than just decorative pieces or a, a way to make a living. He literally thought of his art as like babies or living entities. Things that carry on on their own. And like any good parent, George made sure his children had a home. He rebuilt his shop and added that distinctive pagoda we mentioned earlier. The 10 years between 1895 and 1905 were George's most productive years. Most all of his work that are all coveted today or dated to this period. And he was prolific in more ways than just pottery. He took a bride, Josephine Gehrig, in 1896. The couple had two children who sadly died in infancy, but then celebrated eight other children. True to his showmanship style, all the surviving or children were named with some derivative of the first three letters of his name, G-E-O. Like so many pioneers and innovators, Orr's artistry wasn't fully appreciated during his own lifetime. He never made substantial income from his pottery. Some of this was because of his designs, and they just were really ahead of their time. Some of it was of his own making, really. He would often place astronomical prices on some of his favorite creations because he simply didn't really want to part with them. Every genius is in debt, he's recorded as saying. Orr closed his shop in 1909, never firing another ceramic again. As far as history can determine, George's family was relatively well off and owning businesses and properties across the state. This fact was probably how George was allowed to operate a pottery shop that lost money for years and allowed him a comfortable life after inheriting his parents' estate upon their death. In the final chapter of The Mad Potter's Life, he fully leaned into his character. He dressed in a flowing robe and wandered the Biloxi streets proclaiming himself as Father Time, 
His public speaking and writing became more and more esoteric, sometimes even, let's say, incoherent. George died in 1918. He left behind 7,000 crates of unsold pottery, stored in the auto repair garage owned by his son. And here they sat until the day we mentioned in 1968, when James Carpenter, the antique shop owner from New Jersey, was introduced to the genius of the Mad Potter. James offered Ojo Orr 15,000 smackaroos for the whole of his father's collection. The offer was refused, and James let the matter lie down and kind of die out. But he couldn't get the mass of colorful, twisted ceramic curios out of his head. A few years later, James and the Oars came to an undisclosed deal and the collection was sold. Publicity and popularity of Oars Pots soon started a, a slow burn that eventually built to a raging inferno. Andy Warhol bought a few pieces. Later, so did Steven Spielberg and Jack Nicholson. And at the time of this podcast, single ore pieces can sell anywhere from $20,000 to sixty grand. George Orr, the, the Mad Potter of Biloxi, once equipped that his ceramics were worth their weight in gold. It would have seemed crazy at the time, but George was actually probably lowballing himself. As you've probably discerned, the, the potter himself was no less eccentric than his wares. His productive period coincided with the late Victorian era. And for men of the time, the, the handlebar mustache was a stylish feature for many. True to his penchant for the over-the-topness nature of culture, George Orr's facial hair took the mustachio chic to a new level. His mustache was, by some accounts, 18 inches long. He would often take the ends and tie it behind the back of his neck, like a bow or like a piece of rope. There's an iconic photo of George that looks as if he's just just been sideswiped by a hurricane. We'll post it in the link in the show notes. If we want to stay on the topic of the Mississippi Gulf Coast, mad behavior and um, hair, uh, we need to visit a truly weird and still unexplained series of events in the region's history. It was the summer of 1942, Pascagoula, Mississippi, formerly a small town whose primary industry was fishing, had witnessed rapid growth since the outbreak of World War II. After the devastating attack at Pearl Harbor, the U.S. Navy needed battle-worthy ships, and Pascagoula provided an excellent port in which to build those ships. Due to the new industry and job demand in the area, the town's population had tripled in just a few years. As can be expected, rapid population increases creates a boom to the economy, but also puts a strain on the local resources. Growing pains, 
growing pains, growing pains. For, for Pascagoula's case, one of these areas of strange resources was the city's police force. Mary Evelyn Briggs and Edna Marie Heidel shared a room at Our Lady of Victory's convent in Pascagoula. The night of June 5, 1942, the two were surprised to be awakened by a figure climbing out of their bedroom window. Described as short and fat, the man, it was presumed it was a man, didn't seem to have harmed the ladies, but perhaps he was a voyeur or a, a peeping Tom of sorts. Perhaps the, the incident was a robbery, but it didn't seem like anything had been taken. But that wasn't fully true. Well, not material goods or valuables had been lifted by the intruder. He had taken something, though. Both Marie and Edna were missing a lock of their hair. Yeah, whoever was in their room just snipped hair from both of their heads. Three days later in the evening of Monday, June 8th, six-year-old Carol Petey. Carol Petey had her hair snipped as she slumbered in the bed next to her twin brother. Upon investigation, it was found that the, the perpetrator had apparently gained entry to the room by, by slitting the, the window screen. A solitary footprint, assumed to be the assailant's, was found in the sand outside the window. What could have been chalked to a creepy, relatively harmless prank soon turned much darker. On Friday of that same week, another window screen was slit and home invaded. But this time the offense went far beyond snipping a few strands of hair. In the home of Terrell and Lillian Heidelberg, the assailant, who would henceforth be known as the Phantom Barber of Pascagoula, attacked the couple with an iron rod, knocking Mr. Heidelberg unconscious and knocking out some of Mrs. Heidelberg's teeth. Never fulfilling some odd fantasy by breaking in a house and cutting a bit of someone's hair was one thing, but assault with a deadly weapon was quite another matter. The local authorities mobilized and actually deputized six men to help with the unstaffed police force. They brought in bloodhounds in an attempt to track the Phantom Barber's scent, and it actually worked, kind of. The, the dogs located a pair of blood-stained gloves, assumed to be the attackers, and tracked a scent to the thicket of woods nearby the Heidelberg residence, where they unfortunately lost the trail. The following Sunday, there was yet another window screen slit in the middle of the night. One Miss R.E. Taylor and the sake of saving some time with the story, was deprived of a lock of hair, too, in the middle of the night. Recounting the story to authorities, the victim said that she had awoke suddenly to a sickening smell and then didn't remember anything until waking up again, post-haircut. Sometime later, and being violently ill, authorities theorized that the phantom barber had, had employed a chloroform-soaked rag to commit his latest atrocity. 
The attack on Mrs. Taylor was, was the last known attack of the Phantom Barber. And unlike other strange and weird assailants like Jack the Ripper or Spring-Heeled Jack or the Mad Gasser of Mattoon, there was a, an arrest made in the case of the Phantom Barber. A local chemist, William Dolan, aged 57, was arrested and charged with the attacks. Among the allegations bound against Dolan, it was claimed that he had a legal argument with Mr. Heidelberg, thus leading motive to the attack. Additionally, upon searching his home, police claimed to have found a bundle of hair, some of which was supposedly matched to that of Carol Petey, the Phantom Barber's second victim, Gross. Dolan proclaimed his innocence, but nevertheless, the jury found him guilty and he was summarily sentenced to 10 years in prison. Six years later, the, the governor of Mississippi became involved and asked Dolan to take a lie detector test. After said test, we're assuming he passed. The governor lessened the terms of his incarceration. Dolan served the time and was a free man again in 1952. So was justice really served here? There actually was bad blood between Dolan and Heidelberg, but what would have been the motive for the other attacks? Perhaps Dolan was guilty of the Heidelberg attack, which was egregious, but he had no involvement in the Phantom Barber snippings. The police allegedly found hair at Dolan's residence. The FBI claimed it matched that of the, the second Barber victim, but, but as we know it today, the, the science of the day, science in quotes here, um, it really wasn't reliable. And many who have reviewed this case over the subsequent years believe that the, the evidence could have been maybe planted by the police. Remember, it was 1942. America had just entered World War II and the country was mobilizing against foreign enemies. Pascagoula, because of the town's status as a major industrial area, supplying the U.S. war effort, rumors about Nazi spies abounded. There was a belief, we don't know for sure if it was justified or not, that Dolan was a German sympathizer. Perhaps the police wanted to provide a nail in the coffin to get Dolan out of society. As we go to our last eccentric genius, there is no way to truly explain the vast and wonderful artistic phenomenon that is Walter Anderson. Walter Inglis Anderson was born on September 29th, 1903 in New Orleans. He was the second of his three brothers, and as a child, Anderson attended a small school, St. John's School in Manilas, New York, but the war interrupted the schooling for young Anderson. He then transferred to manual training school in New Orleans, Louisiana. Anderson enrolled at the New York School of Fine Art, which is now called Parsons School of Design. After college, he spent some time in France, and he really was able to hone in on a particularly impressive cave painting kind of style. In 1928, his older brother, Peter, opened the Shearwater Pottery Factory in Ocean Springs, a 24-acre parcel of property his parents had part purchased in 1918, gave way for this place's existence. He was back in Ocean Springs working at Shearwater. In 1929, he designed his earliest ceramic pieces, pelicans and crabs and 
1941, Anderson broke off working for the family pottery business and moved to Gaucher, Mississippi. The drawing methods became really, really indicative of educator Adolfo Best Malgrad. In 1945, he moved back in with his family at a cottage at Shearwater. There until his death in 1965, he lived a reclusive life. He worked as a decorator and he still was working with his pottery, making frequent excursions in a rowboat, sometimes rigged with a sail. He'd go out from Ocean Springs to Horn Island, Mississippi, where he kind of lived in a primitive way. The conditions portray him as this kind of lost soul that went out to the reclusive nature and just never really came back. He also ventured around abroad, going to Costa Rica and China, made numerous bicycle trips, and some of which he traveled thousands of miles. He wrote, the wheels are turning again. A bicycle seems to leave no room for other evils, or goods for that matter. It seemed as though Anderson couldn't sit still. In 1965, he ended up going to Horn Island, knowing that there was going to be some sort of storm. Trudging through the water with his boat behind him, he gets to a spot where he can stay and get kind of dry. He then overturns the boat and uses it for some sort of uh, sheltering from a storm. Rumor has it he was there for three days. He said the storm had dignity, and he wrote that in his log. He also wrote, Never have I ever seen more ravishing jewelry than shown in the foam. He was describing the thin, broken pieces quivering with the slightest breath of air so that all the colors scintillated with the movement. What's also wildly phenomenal about this story is that the the hurricane that came through was supposed to be one of the first U.S. hurricanes to really cause a billion dollars in damage. It was a bad storm. It was called Betsy. Whatever drove the arguably the most uh, famous Southern artist to just go sit in the middle of a storm is always going to be some sort of point of your fascination. It is easy to think that he saw some beauty in things that most plebeian or non-artistic people would see. All of this to be said, you can still see a lot of Anderson's work in Ocean Springs. You could always go down to the Gulf Coast and get a good view of some of those colors that Walter Anderson's beautiful watercolors might have portrayed. After coming back from the storm, Anderson's wife said that he spoke very iceberg theory, to say the least, about what exactly had happened the past three days. She said that he was there for one day, and then the next day, he was gone, taking his bike to the next weird and strange eccentric adventure. Mississippi is filled with people like this. It is a land of cultural wealth, and for that we are thankful. If you can, come and visit us sometime. Go down to the Gulf Coast and see Walter Anderson's beautiful watercolors or maybe George Orr's pottery. I would say, if traveling to the coast, make sure to stay clear of the hurricanes and the, the nasty weather. 
And don't go use a canoe for finding shelter from the storm. We want you to stick around. This episode of Strange Wanders was written and researched by Tim Mask and Cole Furlow. Sound design, editing, and narration by Cole Furlow. Strange Wanders is a production of MWB Studios and is sponsored by Visit Mississippi. Please follow, rate, and review Strange Wanders on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Please follow the show at Strange Wanders on Instagram and Twitter. You can email us at mwbstudios at mwb.com. And please visit our sponsor at visitmississippi.org. This wouldn't be possible without them. As always, thanks for listening. This podcast produced and distributed by MWB Studios.